This is Big Talk. Michael Glab here. And before I introduce this week's guest, I'd like to share some facts and figures with the listeners and with my guest, although I, I, I'm almost certain my guest knows these facts and figures right off the bat, but we'll find out. The World Population Review, which is sort of like a global census organization, put out not long ago some statistics showing the numbers of people behind bars in the nations of the globe. And the top five, according to their study, are these. Let's go. Here we go. Russia, number five, 471,490 people behind bars, municipal, state, whatever their governmental organizations are, the various jails. India, number four, 478,600. Next, at number three, Brazil, 811,707 people behind bars. Then we take a huge jump up to China at 1,690,000 people. And then the winner, the champion. Now, let me take that back. Let me say the loser, because this is not a winning proposition here. The United States of America at the top has behind bars 2,068,800 people. Wow. Unbelievable. And just real quickly, uh, I want to point out that China, which ranks way back a half million behind us, has a population about four times the United States. India, at number four, has a population three to four times the United States. They have one-fifth of the people. Four of these nations can be described as repressive or borderline authoritarian. And then there's the United States. My guest this week the civil rights attorney, the law professor, and now the author, Dan Cannon. Dan, welcome to Big Talk. Thanks for having me, Michael. Always a pleasure. Now, Dan Cannon has just come out with a new book. It's, uh, it's his first, I believe, right, Dan? Yes, sir. Okay. Pleading Out, How Plea Bargaining Creates a Permanent Criminal Class. Released last month, the publisher, Basic Books, you can get it at any bookstore and all the places online that you could get books. Dan takes, uh, takes his ire, I would say, to uh, something that goes on here. Dan, how did you come to write this first book of yours? Well... And thanks again, Michael, for covering this, because I think it's a really important topic. And, and everything that you said at the top of the show uh, about the incarceration rates, the numbers for all of these um, other countries, many of which have a, a much larger population in the United States. You know, part of what my curiosity was that led to writing the book is, you know, why are our criminal 
justice outcomes so much worse than most of the rest of the industrialized world? Uh, why do we lock up more people? Uh, why do we, you know, arrest more people? Uh, why do we lock up people for longer? You know, why is this such a monstrosity uh, compared to the rest of the world? And and what I keep coming back to, what I kept coming back to when I was researching this, is that we have a different approach to plea bargaining than any other country in the world. And so, not to not to th- throw more statistics at your audience, but we have right now uh, a plea bargaining rate, a, a guilty plea rate on criminal cases that is 97%, meaning that 97% of all the criminal cases that end up in our system are going to end up in a guilty plea. And the vast majority of those are the result of a plea bargain. So some sort of haggling process that goes on between the prosecution and the defense. Now you're saying that these don't go to trial. Correct. So the American jury trial, for all intents and purposes, is dead. Only two to three percent of all criminal cases go to trial in the United States. And that puts us way uh, that makes us a huge outlier when you compare us with the rest of the world, even common law legal systems like uh, the UK and Canada and Australia. You know, none of those countries top out at at more than 80% of a guilty plea rate, you know, meaning they're taking at least 20% of their cases to trial. In India, you mentioned India, you know, India only uh, pleads out about 1% of the millions of, I think, 10 million cases that they have, you know, out there every year. Yeah. And so our, our rate of plea bargaining is way, way higher than the rest of the world and our criminal justice outcomes are worse than most of the rest of the world. And I wanted to examine whether or not that was a coincidence. At the same time, you know, I've been representing incarcerated people for about 15 years now, and I've gotten to hear a lot of stories doing that. And a lot of these stories are from people who are totally bewildered, that had no idea what they were getting into, no idea what they were signing off on, no idea what, you know, uh, was going to happen to them when they pleaded guilty. They just did it because their attorney told them to, and because that's what you do. You know, culturally speaking, since so many cases result in a plea bargain, it's expected that once you get swept into the criminal justice system, that you're going to plead to something and that's how your case is going to resolve. So for many of these people, the idea of a jury trial was never really seriously on the table. Now, you say that you've heard a lot of stories and the new book, Pleading Out, uh, begins with the story of a 1972 case of a man from Kentucky charged with check kiting. And as far as I can determine, I don't know if it was one check or several checks, but the total amount of the kiting scheme was $88.30. What happened with him, Dan? One check at a grocery store. So Paul Hayes in 1972 is a 29-year-old black horse transporter. And he shows up at a grocery store and a guy there says, hey, can you, you know, can you, can you cash this check for me? Um, Because I need some money for bus fare or whatever. So he writes a check for $88.30. The check turns out to be a bad check. And he gets arrested by a Lexington police officer um, right then and there. So Paul had been in trouble with the law a little bit before. 
years before. And so the prosecutor comes to him and says, well, you're going to do five years. You're going to spend five years in prison. That's my offer for this check, this $88.30 check. He's like, I didn't even know what I was signing. I was just trying to help a guy out. I'm not taking five years. You know, I got a job and a family and everything else. I'm not taking five years on a bad check. The prosecutor says, well, if you don't want to do five years, I'm going to hit you with what's called the habitual offender statute, what we now call a persistent felony offender statute in Kentucky. And that's going to give you a mandatory uh, penalty of life in prison. So it's either five years or I hit you with this other charge and you get life. Paul Hayes is either is either um, very stupid or very brave. And I've gone over this trial transcript a bunch of times. I think he was very brave. And he said, I'm not taking it. You know, you're not going to push me around. I'll take my chances with the jury. Well, he has a jury trial. He gets convicted under the habitual offender statute and he gets life in prison over an $88.30 check. That case goes all the way up to the Supreme Court. Now, you know, the, the historical context here, you have to remember that at this point in time in the 1970s, we were doing things a little differently. Like most cases were still pleaded out, but um, not, not as high a rate as we have today. And there was popular discussion at that time. You know, courts weren't exactly sure if they liked you know, the prosecutor having the power to offer anything and everything to get somebody to, to, to plead guilty. And, you know, law professors weren't exactly sure if they liked this system. And, you know, there was talk in the, the bar associations about, well, do we really want this to go on? And some jurisdictions even experimented with getting rid of plea bargaining. Well, that case goes all the way up to the United States Supreme Court. And the, 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 the Supreme Court essentially puts the issue to bed by saying, the prosecutor's job is to persuade the defendant into giving up their right to trial. And Mr. Hayes wasn't persuaded. Them's the breaks, tough break. And the prosecutor even said in that case that if you put me, he said this in open court, if you put me through the inconvenience, he says the inconvenience of going to trial, that I'm going to hit you with this additional charge and you're going to get life in prison. So essentially, oh, yeah, Paul Hayes gets life in prison for exercising his right to a jury trial, which is something we really we really think of as being sacred, you know, in America, but happens very rarely. And the Supreme Court says that's okay. And we don't teach this case very much in the law schools, but I will tell you that I think it's a turning point in American history because that opened the floodgates for prosecutors to be able to do anything and everything they want, use any carrot and any stick to get somebody who's been charged with a crime to plead to something. And so they do.
Dan Cannon uh, teaches uh, law at the University of Louisville. And by the way, I love this about Dan's biography. He dropped out of high school at the age of 17, raised by a single mother. And now look what he's doing. As a matter of fact, Dan Cannon was counsel for two plaintiffs in the Obergfell versus Hodges United States Supreme Court case that decided same-sex marriage. So basically, you overcame dropping out of high school. Uh, congratulations on that, Dan. Thank you. It was, it, it was not a typical career path. Not, not something I would necessarily <laughs> recommend to any high school students that are out there listening. Yeah. So now he's got the book out, Pleading Out, How Plea Bargaining Creates a Permanent Criminal Class. The courts are swamped. This must be working for somebody. Who? Sure. Well, the courts are swamped mostly because, you know, we've created this gigantic criminal class by having, and this is part of the focus of the book, by, 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 by criminalizing basically everything that you can think of. Now, you look at the conviction rates and the arrest rates of America compared with the rest of the world, and you come to one of two conclusions. One is that we just have more criminals here for some reason, whatever reason, you know, too much sex on TV or violent video games or, you know, something in the water or what have you, or that those criminals, quote unquote, criminals are being artificially manufactured by the state and that something else is going on. And what I'm saying in the book is that the plea bargain uh, is, is something else. You know, you don't convict that many people. You don't get that many people involved in the criminal justice system without a mechanism for being able to do it. And the plea bargain is that mechanism. So, you know, if, you, if you've got a ton of people swept into a system and you say, all right, there's going to be this, this search for the truth. There's going to be this fact-finding mission. We're going we're gonna to really uh, get to the bottom of what happened here. Well, you can't do that for thousands upon thousands of people. You have to, if you want lots and lots of convictions, and American prosecutors do, and American police do, you know, if you want lots of convictions, you have to have a mechanism for getting all those cases through very quickly. No time for facts, no time for debate, no time for discussion. Let's just put a rubber stamp on this and, you know, create another criminal and off they go. Bring them um, in, move them out. Yeah. And sometime during, I mean, I trace the history of the thing in the book, but but the long story short, I mean, sometime uh, in the early 20th century, we decided that expediency, right around prohibition, we decided that expediency was going to be the guiding principle of the criminal justice system. And that stuck all the way through the drug wars and, you know, everything else. And so now, you know, every legislative session, you see these state legislatures and United States Congress ramming through these criminal laws that are unnecessary and unwarranted and, you know, nobody really pays attention to them because um, you have a public that is really completely removed altogether from the process of criminal justice. So unless you're on the receiving end or you're, unless you're a lawyer, you don't really ever see the inside of a courtroom because we don't have any more jury trials. And so the community has been completely removed from this whole process. And it's kind of taken on this mind of its own, where the only thing that really matters to American criminal justice is getting lots and lots of convictions as quickly as possible. And that's where we are. 
you know, you talk to anybody who's uh, been called in for jury duty and you always almost a hundred percent hear, well, I kept on calling in to see if they needed me that day, but they never needed me. Yeah. You know, and, and what's interesting about it is who gets called in the first place and who shows up for jury duty in the first place. There's a study out of Texas. I talk about in my book that says that, you know, in major metropolitan areas, the people that are called for jury service, you know, of those folks, only about 20% ever even show up, right? So you're dealing with 20% of people, most of whom can afford to take, you know, a couple of days off of work to do their civic duty. Those folks are going to be called down to a very small number because it's very easy to get out. I mean, I can't tell you as a lawyer, how many times to have, have people come to me and say, how do I get out of jury duty? It's like <laughs> this, this thing that we've culturally made into kind of a pain, right? You know, it's, yeah. it's a drag. We don't want to do jury duty. It's, you know, like I only get paid 12 bucks a day or whatever it is. And this is really boring or whatever. You know, it's hard for working class people to do it. So I'm sympathetic to it, but it's also very easy to get out of jury duty. And so what you end up with, what we've ended up with is because there's so few jury trials and so few people that have to show up for jury service at all, that juries start to look a lot the same, right? It's mostly upper middle-class white people that, that serve on juries. And, and, and those juries tend to not look a whole lot like the people that are actually accused of crime in America. So the idea that we have a citizen jury of a defendant's peers, I mean, we've never really tried that in any meaningful way in the United States. The plea bargain took over before you know, like, say, for example, um, women were even sitting on juries, oh. certainly, certainly before, you know, uh, the, the, we, we had any mechanisms for dealing with the systematic exclusion of people of color from juries. Yeah. So we, it's the, the, the idea of a jury of our peers is mostly a myth and something that we've not really tried in the U.S. Now, you mentioned that there are these laws that create more crimes and we're creating this huge criminal class of people. And I wonder, how does prison privatization play into this, in your opinion? Yeah, well, it, that, that is not good, you know, obviously, uh, because it creates even more demand for more people to be warehoused, right? Once you turn that over to private industry, you know, there's already this sort of this, this perverse incentive for police to arrest as many people as possible, you know, because it's tied to federal grant money or because it's just tied to department standards or what have you. And, and people then, start looking at this stuff almost like a box score. Yeah, exactly. And the same is true for prosecution, right? Yeah. So there's, you know, there's, I mean, you want to win when you're a lawyer. You know, you, you want to get as many convictions as possible. I've got a story from a former uh, assistant United States attorney in the book that talks about, you know, how his um, conviction rates were tied to his office's budget. You know, so the more convictions you get, the more money you get to be able to run your office and you get all these awards and these accolades. And that's what the system demands of you. And so you add a profit motive to all that, you know, which actually happens even with in the, in the case of you know, municipalities. So if you have a, a public jail, they still get paid more per head that they have in there in many places. You know, you add a profit motive with the for-profit uh, prison industry, and, and it becomes even worse because they're trying to get as many people 
crammed into a, a small space as possible and take care of them as cheaply as possible so they can you know take as much money off the top as possible you know so so yeah I mean the problems of capitalism certainly uh, attend every stage of the criminal justice system but that in particular is is you know something that is so open and obvious and terrible that it you know it's it's one of those things that it just simply shouldn't be allowed and in most countries wouldn't be the book is pleading out how plea bargaining creates a permanent criminal class the author civil rights attorney law professor dan cannon now dan we divide crimes into violent and nonviolent in other words, uh, something on the order of, well, this is a real crime, and this is uh, uh, just sort of a half crime. Th that's the way we all look at things now. How is this playing into this phenomenon? Well, I don't know that we necessarily do that. You know, that's the funny thing about this is, and you look at the psychology behind labeling somebody a criminal. Okay. That's part of a big premise of the book, is that you know, by taking right now in America, one out of every three people has a no, three adult has a criminal or arrest record of some kind. Mm -hmm. It's a massive, massive number of people. And so there's always been a criminal class in society, right? This criminal element in society, you know, since human civilization was a thing. But what we've done in the United States is to extend and amplify the boundaries of that class in a way that the world has never seen. And so since there are so many criminal laws, you can go out and get popped for just about anything. I think, you know, there's a statistic in the book where one, one lawyer says that professionals sitting at a computer can commit up to like three felonies a day without even knowing it. Right? <laughs> you know, so anything and everything is criminalized, whether you intend for it to have committed a crime or not. And, you know, what, whether, uh, whether the, the, the society really denounces it or not, whether it violates any cultural mores or not, but we still attach a stigma to anybody with the label of criminal. Right. And that's very important. Uh, because you know, if you accept the premise of the uh, of part of the premise of my book is that you know labeling lots and lots of people criminals disrupts solidarity among the working class. It keeps people from banding together and doing big things. You know, to to make a long story short, and you can see that you know if you look at the roots of uh, uh, the historical practice of plea bargaining and what it was aimed to, uh, at doing, it was to originally to to break up. Um, the labor movement to, you know, to break up the working class. And it still works that way today. It does it by alienating you know, a full one third of the population from everybody else. Right? So we still have this stigma, even though uh, the, the laws that we, we don't pay that much attention to the criminal laws that we pass, we still have the stigma around criminals. Right? You don't hang out with criminals. You don't play in the same sandbox with a criminal. You don't let your kids date criminals. You, know, you don't want to team up with them to do anything. Um, there's a stigma that attaches, and in fact, not only does that stigma apply, you know, vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the world, but someone who's been labeled a criminal by the system sees themselves very differently. You know, not only do we not want to play with criminals, but they don't want to play at all. They become more withdrawn from society. 
They're more likely to adopt antisocial behaviors, more likely to adopt criminal behaviors, just as a result of having that label slapped on them. So, you know, just the labeling of criminals that we've done in American society has this insidious effect uh, that, that, that applies in, in a very big way. And I think that has done, well, really incalculable damage to the society. And, and it's all been done sort of in secret, like quickly and quietly using plea bargains, which makes it feel voluntary to the person that has, you know, taken the, uh, that has, that has taken on the criminal label and to the rest of society, because we can look at a plea bargain and say, or, or a guilty plea and say, well, look, you agreed to that. You said you did it. Uh, and therefore your membership in the criminal class is voluntary. It's been a very sophisticated tool um, that now is operating on autopilot, but it, was, but it started as a sophisticated tool for disrupting working class solidarity. It's been very, very effective. Dan, can this problem, the problem addressed in the book, Pleading Out, can it be changed or will it take a thousand years? Well, it could take a thousand years. I think if you're waiting on legislatures to change it, it's going to take a thousand years. And I think for the most part, if you're waiting for criminal justice insiders, courthouse insiders to change it, it could take a thousand years. Top-down solutions, by and large, are not going to work. Uh, but I think ultimately, if there's going to be change in the system. It has to come from the bottom up. And people have to recognize that you know, plea bargaining is not always a great thing. It's, it's not always this sort of natural, necessary end to a case, and that they do have the right to go to trial, and that as a society, we should be encouraging people to exercise that right more frequently. This is an amazing, frightening phenomenon that's going on. The plea bargaining, the assembly line legal system we have now. Read this blistering critique called Pleading Out, How Plea Bargaining Creates a Permanent Criminal Class. The author, Dan Cannon. Dan, good luck with this book uh, and good luck changing this whole darn thing. Well, thanks very much, Michael, and thanks for helping bring attention to it.